of the book of Philippians again today. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the second half of the Carmen Christi, the second half of the Hymn of Christ. Those of you who have been here for a while know of my love-hate relationship with Philippians. We have battled with this book for a while. I have been knocked out a number of times. For some reason, I keep getting back up and walking back to the center of the ring. My face is bloody. My body is bruised. But I am stubborn nonetheless. So I will continue to battle with this book until I am knocked out or until the ref calls the fight. One of the two. So bear with me as we work through Philippians. Word of prayer. And I'm going to read the whole hymn. So I'll start at verse 5 and I'll go through verse 11. The hymn actually starts at verse 6, but verse 5 is a great lead-in. It reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, in the beginning of the hymn, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Dan texted me a couple days ago and he says, what's your title for Sunday? And I quickly made one up and I sent it to him and I said, Christ, our Savior and our King. And I said, it really doesn't fit, but it sounds good. And I said, wait, wait, let's change it. And I changed it to, to the glory of God the Father. And the reason I changed it to that is because that's really the crux of the passage. Now, to give an outline, if I can do that again, we're going to revisit or reconsider the context of this hymn. We're going to reframe the content of this hymn, and then we're going to refocus our gaze as we seek to apply it to our lives. I think I did better there than last time with my context, content, connect. I think the refocus and it worked. Good job. We're, we're, we're progressing and that's the point. Generally, at the end of a year, there's a lot of thinking that occurs. Oftentimes, we reflect on the many days that preceded. Sometimes we go as far back to the new year and 
think about all of the resolutions that we made. Anybody here made a New Year's resolution? Nobody raises their hand. It's okay. I'm the only one. That's all right. But we think about these resolutions. We think about the things we wanted to make our focus, our priority, something that was not in the year before, and for whatever reason, we feel it reaches a height of being exactly that, some sort of priority, some sort of focus, something we want to strive toward. Again, if you are a resolution maker, you know, just like I know, and you've experienced, just like I've experienced, the joy of failure. I can't think of a single resolution that I've made that I have accomplished wholeheartedly. It is hard to do. It's difficult, I would venture to say, near impossible. Not because we don't have the drive to do it, not because it's not an achievable goal, not because it's not specific and measurable and attainable and relevant and all these things, but because life gets in the way. Because there are so many things that occur in the matter of a day that our attention can't quite stay on what we considered the main thing. So difficult at times to hold on to what we once considered so important. Because there are so many distractions that tend to get in the way. Now, when considering that, we can think about this idea of were our goals appropriate? We can reevaluate them and we can reframe them and think about how in the world could I have better planned this in anticipation of all the things that would come up, of all the changes that would happen, of all the distractions that would show face. And even in doing that, we find ourselves in the same place, a place of, well, disappointment, failure, and, well, we'll do better next year. A question that often pervades the minds of young people, well, the answer does anyway, is why in the world am I here to begin with? What's the purpose of it all? What's the meaning? Because if we can nail that answer down, our resolutions now become a lot more meaningful. Our resolutions become a lot easier to hold on to and to grasp. If we can nail down the answer to that question, our prayer is that it all makes sense all of a sudden. And that our pursuits would no longer be taking us down roads or paths that are full of branches and thorns and weeds, and we'd have a nice, clearly laid out path to walk. Scripture gives us that answer. The great catechisms of old make it the very first question and answer to consider. I think about the Westminster Catechism, which says, what is the chief end of man? And the church answers, to glorify God and enjoy him 
forever. It's that simple. Our New Year's resolution this year, 2024, ought be as a church, we will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is that so straight a path? Is it so clear on the paved road out front? Do we know what it looks like to glorify God? Do we have a roadmap to that? Is it so clear and so perfect and so easy to pursue? Is it something we can grab hold to and never let go of because it's our sole aim and focus to glorify God and to enjoy him for all eternity. It's a great resolution. I think about the last time we were in Philippians and I think about how we framed that passage. I think about the context in which this hymn has been given. And we talked about the mind of Christ and how these things are ours because we are in Christ. And we're supposed to have this mind amongst ourselves as the people of God for the very reason that we are in Christ. We spoke briefly about this idea of fellowship or partnership in the spirit. Partnership in the gospel, this koinonia that Paul speaks of, and how the Philippians themselves were most definitely partners with him in his proclamation of the gospel. And then he goes into this treatise on things that they ought do and, and things that they ought have amongst themselves. He speaks of unity, having the same mind. He speaks of love. He speaks of humility, of obedience, of self-sacrifice. And he tells us that this is, in fact, the mind of the church. This is how we ought live. And we said that he used the hymn as a way to reinforce this Christian ethic that he had just proclaimed. He uses this hymn as a way of giving us an example of how even the greatest, even Christ himself, displayed each and every one of these things. And if the greatest among us would consider his brother or his sister as greater than himself, if the king would consider his slave as more important than himself. Why is it so difficult for you and I to look at someone who is on the same level as us in need and ignore them? Or why is it so difficult for us to recognize our own faults and as the scripture said in Matthew this morning, our own logs in our eyes. 
in hopes of judging another to make ourselves feel bigger or better. Why do we get so lost in our own pursuits, so lost in elevating and exalting ourselves, so lost in being prideful that all who are around us become secondary? All who are around us become a means to an end rather than the ones we love and hold so dear and serve and encourage and treat as our own selves. So Paul gives us this perfect example of Christ. He shows us that these things ought be among the church. This mind of unity, of love, of humility, of obedience, of self-sacrifice, this must be the mind of the church. And then he goes into this treatise on Christ. Now, why does any of that matter when we consider what we're talking about here as our chief aim? as our goal, as our singular focus of glorifying God, right? Because that's so clear. We know what glorifying God looks like, right? Showing up to church on Sunday and prayer service on Wednesday, singing these hymns and shouting hallelujah. We know what glorifying God looks like. Dropping a few bucks in that red pail outside of Walmart around the holidays. We know what it looks like. Giving money here or giving money there. Giving this person a ride or maybe buying this person a meal. That's what glorifying God looks like, right? But why does that occur if it is so infrequently? And why are we in so many silos and separated from one another? Why are our hearts so closed off from our brothers and our sisters in Christ? You know, one of the most difficult parts in, of Christian counseling is the realization that somebody's more comfortable talking to a complete stranger than they are talking to a brother or a sister in Christ about their problems. That ought to bother us. It speaks a lot more about us than it does about them, whoever them is. Because we're the ones doing it. But we get to this hymn and we're told to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. But let's reframe it a little. Let's look not just at ourselves, but let's look at who the hymn is actually about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Now, as we consider that, we see immediately a counter-cultural push. We see that God himself, in the person of Christ Jesus, is not grasping after something, is not seeking to promote himself, but as we see in verse 11, it's all to the glory of the Father. He's got no other drive, no other aim, no other focus other than glorifying his Father. We see that. We see the example. We understand that that's how Christ lived, so we ought. Yet, let's continue. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this emptying, this kenosis is the theological term and the Greek term there, is not him devolving himself of his godship. Last time, I tried to frame it in such a way of showing that it's not that he ceased being God in any way, shape, or form, but that Christ himself didn't grab hold of the privileges that being God would, would demand. You didn't fall dead when he walked in the room because of his holiness. He, it was more of an adding to, if I can do that cautiously, if I can say that cautiously, than anything else. He took on a human form. One commentator put it, in a very peculiar way, if I could say that. It's more of him becoming, bear with the analogy, more than God, if that's possible, than becoming less God and more man. Fully God, truly God, but yet fully man, truly man. No mixing of the two. And so he empties himself, and it explains, the text explains what that emptiness means, what that emptying means. It means taking on the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men. Not a loss of anything, but a taking on of his very creation. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see that Christ had two very active things being done. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. The subject of that emptying being Christ and the subject of that humbling being Christ. He's emptying himself. It's a middle verb. He's doing this to himself of his own volition in a voluntary manner. Christ is emptying himself. He chooses to take on this form of a slave. He chooses to be born 
in the likeness of men. He does not consider himself in all ways as being greater or better or more important than the Father. Yet for this reason, he chooses to do these things. And so we have in this hymn, these three sections, this Christ section, this God section, and this creation section. And in each of them, we have two active verbs in which we have Christ doing these two things, and next God will do his. So Christ empties himself. He humbles himself. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we framed that last time in the sense of showing that the greatest, God himself in Christ Jesus, not only emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, but made his very aim, the pleasing of his master. So much so that his obedience didn't just stop up until the point that he thought this was sufficient, but when the master said, yes, you have to go to the cross, he went willingly. So even to the point of death, even where the world would think all things ended, this servant, this Christ, this slave remained obedient. And it would be fine if the death were a natural death. It would be fine if it was dying from old age. It would be fine if, I don't know, one day you walked out in the middle of the street and it was done. But it was the most insulting, brutal, disgusting, self-debasing death a person could have. A death so cruel that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. A death so bad it was reserved for the scum, the worst among us. A death in Jewish circles that myth. You were accursed by God. And yet, even to the point of being viewed as accursed of God, Christ was obedient. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself, taking on this human form and all of its restrictions and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I don't know about you, but the more I view this passage in light of Christ, the more my heart wrenches. The more I understand exactly who it is 
that suffers this tragedy, the more I see my own guilt and sinfulness. But I'm reminded of those two verbs that Christ emptied himself. And that Christ humbled himself. Because it was Christ who chose to enter into his creation and to die for his creation. Verse 9, we see what God did in response. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Christ, the Son of God, who did not view equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself, took on the form of a slave voluntarily, was obedient to the will of his master, even to death on a cross. God exalted. God lifted up. God put him in the highest of high places. And God bestowed. God gave him all rule and authority to go with that high position. He's not king in name only. He's not just some random person who got to a position because his dad was on the board. This is Jesus who by his own will surrendered all all to the glory of his father. And this same Jesus receives by the will of his father this exaltation and this bestowing. And get this, it doesn't stop there. Verse 10. The Jesus who no one thought much of. The Jesus who himself did not view equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Jesus who himself washed the feet of his disciples, who fed the 5,000 on a number of occasions. The Jesus himself who walked that road to Calvary. And was nailed to a tree.
God sees all. He sees your heart. He sees your motivations. He sees your intentions. He sees your actions. He sees your attitudes. He sees your afflictions. He sees your sufferings. He sees your distractions. He sees your pain. God sees all of you. Every aspect of your life and in your pursuit of glorifying God, seeking to have this one mind amongst yourselves, God sees. In Genesis 16, God speaks to Hagar. She calls on the name of the Lord, or rather she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. It's the ESV. The other versions would actually leave the name untranslated. But you are the God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? She recognizes that she was in the presence of the Most High and that the Most High saw her in her pain, in her most devastated state, running from her master, seeking escape, and God met her where she was and encouraged her and strengthened her and sent her back home. Number two, God exalts the humble. He exalts the meek, for he says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But who are the meek? If not those who patiently endure affliction and suffer without resentment, those who consider others more important than themselves. The meek are those who are in fact living with the mind of Christ. Matthew 23, Christ says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. A word taught and a word demonstrated by the very actions of God himself. In 1 Peter 5, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, the God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he goes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. The proverb tells us that it's a humble spirit that will obtain honor. And again, that God scoffs at the scoffer, yet gives grace to the humble. In Mary's song to the Lord, she says, For he has regarded the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will call me blessed. And she continues, he's brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. Number three, God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises. Now let's consider that in the context of this passage. Israel is a shadow 
or a type of Christ. You can agree with that or disagree with that. I think scripture supports that. We have the Gospels in which we use uh, passages, the Gospel writers use passages referring to Israel to apply to Christ. Out of Egypt I call my son. And to that son, God has promises of blessings to an obedient son, an obedient Israel. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You'll eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. And he even promises to subdue the enemies of his son. I shall eliminate harmful beasts from the land. No sword will pass through your land. You will chase your enemies and they will fall before you. And then the restatement of the law in Deuteronomy. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And so even there, we see this picture of Christ, God's Son, being exalted high above every nation, high above all creation, blessed beyond measure and bestowed a name so great, the very name of God. And fourthly, God rewards the faithful. In Matthew 25, we read Jesus' parable about the faithful servants. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is the God we serve. This is the God we serve. The God who sees us as we are, in all of our situations, in all of our circumstances, the God who exalts us as we humble ourselves, the God who remembers his promises toward us, and the God who rewards the faithful. What a great God we serve. How clear is it to pursue that? as a resolution, to say, Lord, I seek to glorify you with everything that I have, with all that I am, 
And it's not about how lofty a gift you can give. It's not about how perfect a walk you can walk. It's about humbling yourself, serving one another, obeying God and obeying one another, being peacemakers, being meek and mild and lowly, all to the glory of God. You know that Westminster short of catechism when it speaks of the chief end of man gives a couple of proof texts. The first proof text was the, well, no matter whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There's a second proof text because we're not only to glorify God, but we're to enjoy him forever so that before the throne of God we'll serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over us we will hunger no more we will thirst no more nor will the sun beat down on us nor any heat for the lamb in the center of the throne will be our shepherd, Yahweh-Rohi, another name of God from Psalm 23, applied to the Lamb of God, who is Christ, our Lord. Our shepherd, our Lamb, our God, will guide us to springs of the water of life, and will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's what we have to look forward to. That's our chief aim. Not just to be humble and meek and obedient, but just like Christ, to receive the gift of God living in his presence forever being treated as so important because he loves us not because we merit it not because you and I are so great we are flawed beyond measure yet his love for us is so great that in every need and in every way he seeks even in eternity to serve how wonderful a God we serve let's pray most gracious Lord and Father we're so thankful we're so thankful for Christ Jesus so thankful for our God and King. So thankful, Lord, that the hard work was done by you. The heavy lifting, Lord, you performed. You are the one who made us alive together with Christ. Something we could never have done on our own. You are the one who have reconciled us to yourself. Again, something we could never have accomplished. 
in our own strength. And Lord, just as you continue to serve our needs day after day, to feed us, to clothe us, to strengthen us, to protect us, to encourage us, Lord, we ought to do the same to one another. Not for our own needs, not for our own glory, but that our love for one another would be to the glory of God. And that we too, Lord, might yearn for that day in which we enjoy you forever. Living in your presence, bowing our knee, not of compulsion, but out of love and adoration and reverence, recognizing you for who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do every second of every day. Be glorified in this day by each of us and every day by all of your creation. In Christ's name, amen.